Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right. So we're in Deuteronomy 6 tonight. I'm just double-checking. There we go. Uh, so if you turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6 or click in your phones, however you're going at it, um, I got to tell you, again, sometimes you just get to a chapter and you're like, no way are we doing two chapters. This is, well, arguably the most important chapter of the Old Testament. So I know that's a huge claim, right? Uh, when Jesus was cornered by the Pharisees and, he, and they said, okay, what's the most important thing? What's the, of all the commandments of the law and the prophets, what's the most important thing? He quotes this chapter. He goes right to this chapter. When Jewish kids are born, when we try to get our kids, when kids are born in America, we try to get them to say mommy or daddy first. It's a competition. And, but in, for Jewish families, especially the, the um, traditional ones, the first thing they try to get them to say is Deuteronomy, a verse in Deuteronomy 6. So they actually try to make that their first words. So it is, it, we're going to get into the chapter tonight. It's got the Shema in it. And it is Moses' teaching. Remember, he's sitting down with Israel before they go for, to charge into the Holy Land. And he just went through the Ten Commandments in the last chapter. And now he's giving his expositional teaching on the Ten Commandments. He's kind of giving his commentary on it. So in Deuteronomy 6, he really covers the first two commandments about how we should understand the first two commandments. And in that comes the Shema, which is kind of, you know, what Jewish people say uh, in response to almost everything. And it's how Jesus responded to what's the greatest commandment. So how do we live our lives and what do we do and how do we even think about God? It's packed into chapter 6. So with that said, setting the expectations up there that high, when we get done, you can tell me if it nailed it for you. But to me, this is just all the theologies packed into one chapter. It's all here. It's waiting for you. So, Ten Commandments are fine. Chapter 6 just blew me away. And so we're just going to sit on it tonight. We're going to go nice and slow because um, there's tons of words in here that we need to really unpack and get going. So, Moses explains the heart of the law. So before he gets into all the particulars, because he will for the rest of Deuteronomy, before he gets into all those little particulars, He's saying, this is the heart of what the law is all about. So don't get, it basically, he says before he even starts on it, don't be a Pharisee. Don't dig into that Pharisaical legalism. Understand the heart of the law and what it's all about. And that's why Jesus went right to Deuteronomy 6 in most of his teachings. He's going back to this idea that our love of God is in our heart. It's not in the way we follow laws, right? So there's a different level. So it starts with verse 1. Now this is the commandment. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. He's referring to the Ten Commandments. But he says it in a singular. This is the commandment. That you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and commandments which I command you. You and your son and your grandson all the days of your lives. That your days may be prolonged. So now this is the commandment at the beginning of verse 1. It's in the emphatic Hebrew. 
mitzvah. One word. In fact, it all comes down to this. This is, in a, it's like saying in English, okay, this is it, people. This is what I'm talking about. It's an emphatic. This is it. This is all the law. This is the law referring to those Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments here are treated as one code or one law. This is the law, right? And, and this is what people need to put in their hearts before they even become a proper Jewish adult, which is why we use the word mitzvah to go with bar, young man's mitzvah. This is the law. A, a son of the law is how you translate bar mitzvah. And they have, is it bat mitzvahs for girls? A daughter of the law, mitzvah. The law. It's one singular idea. So even though the Ten Commandments breaks it out a little bit, mitzvah is the law. It's that idea that we should love the Lord our God with all of our hearts. That's the law. Israel's fate then rests on their ability and their observance not to learn the law, not to recite the law, but to observe them. Asa, which means to do the law. So the whole point of the law is that you do it. And I love this idea. You're supposed to keep it or to, to guard it. We've seen that word keep before, shamar. It mean, it's the same word that a, a soldier would have on guard duty. You're supposed to protect this law with your life. Give your life for this law. And then you pass it on to your kids. So in order in chapter, in verses one and two, you're supposed to do the law, guard the law, and teach the law. That's what we're supposed to be doing. What do I, I've, I, I have the Lord in my life. I want to serve the Lord. What do I do with that? Well, you're supposed to do the law, you're supposed to keep the law, you're supposed to teach the law. And how amazing is it when you start to teach too? And I, for me, I'm a little biased. I love the teaching side. But to do it and to keep it is one thing. It's individual, it's personal. But when you have that coming out of you so much, you just want to share that with people. I really think that teaching part is, is fulfilling. So as try as they, hard as they can, when everything else fails, this is the thing that the Israeli people need God. It proves that they need God, that your days may be prolonged. Following the law, staying within the boundaries that God says we should live actually helps us have longer lives. Therefore, verse 3, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that, it, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Observe it there is, again, the Hebrew shamar, uh, shamar asah, be careful to observe it. So in the first two verses, he puts the, they're separated, but then he brings it together in verse three. Therefore, O Israel, be careful to observe it. Take care guarding this law. Make it precious. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. I'm sorry, that's my one Lord of the Rings reference for tonight. Summarizes all of this at the end of chapter five, but then he comes back to it and, and that we know the expectations, we know the Ten Commandments, we know God, we fear his wrath. All that comes from chapter five. And now the emphasis is keeping the statutes and commandments. And the rationale that's given is that you may multiply greatly, that it might be well with you, um, and that you're going to come into this land or this inheritance that God's given to you. You can follow the Lord without getting the abundance and the inheritance of God. That means it is possible to do that. You can be a servant of God, you can call yourself a believer, and not really have that amazing joy that the law gives us and that, that peace that gives us. So then you get to verse 4. This is the big verse. Are you ready for it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. That is the Shema. It is uh, the John 3.16 for Jewish people. It's that first Bible verse you memorize. It's the one the parents want you to say when you're born. 
Most Jewish people say the Shema twice a day, morning and night. They say that same verse. Uh, it's it's the uh, Hail Mary for Catholics, or the Jewish version of the Hail Mary for Catholics. It's that one verse that they recite over and over and over again. I want to unpack it because it is loaded with theology. Um, if you want the reference, this is the verse that Jesus recites when they say, what's the most important law of all the law and the prophets? And Jesus just recites this. And it hit me when I was going through this. I thought, you know, I used to think that was just a brilliant, intelligent Jesus response, but it wasn't. He was reciting back to something that they learned when they were two. And it really changes those verses in Matthew 22, Mark 12. When Jesus says that, it's not that he's being brilliant and outsmarting them. He's actually being more like a child and he's showing them how simple it really is. And he's giving them a, a childish answer almost. That, that this is the basic, you, you know the answer to this question. You learned it when you were two, right? What's the most important thing? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. So here's some theological keys if you want to break this down, if you got your notes ready. First, God is one, right? At the end of verse four, God is one. The word there is ekad. This is interesting. Ekad is not the same word as one singular, and it's not the same word as a unified one. Those are different Hebrew words. Ekad is a compound unity word. This is important. This is a massive theological kind of construct. I'll give you an example. We'll go back where we used the word ekad. Genesis 1.5. Evening and morning were ekad. So it says evening and morning were one day. So it's two things being compounded into one thing. And here's another one, Genesis 2.24. And the two shall become one flesh, a cod. So a husband and wife come together and they're unified as one person. So the word a cod has been used before in the Bible, clearly in a compound thing. Here it's not clearly compound unless you believe in a trinity, right? Which Jewish people don't. They believe in, a, in our God is one God. Theological key here is God is. There's basically a premise that there is a God. Theological key number three, this God is personal because we are to love this God. And then theological key number four, we have a responsibility to love using the most inward parts of our hearts. Alfab is the word love there, you shall love. Alfab means to come from the inside out. So our love of God is not an outside in, it's not our actions, it's not our works, it comes from the inside out. So how much of this gets internalized when you're memorizing this from your little kid, or does it just become something you recite all the time, right? Like, I think I must have been in my 20s when I really thought about the Lord's Prayer, because we said it in church every week. At the end of the service, you just recite it. And when you learn things when you're a little kid, sometimes it just goes right over your head, like you're not even thinking about it. But think of the theology packed into this. Hero Israel implies that we're supposed to listen. All the children of God are supposed to hear this. The Lord, Jehovah, our God, Elohim, the Lord, Jehovah, is one God. So where you see the all capital letters on Lord and Lord, sandwiching God, which is Elohim. This is interesting. Jehovah is not to be spoken or translated. Jewish people used Y-H-W-H because they didn't put the vowels in it because the name of God shouldn't be written. So there could be one or more uses of, of, of Jehovah, Yahweh, it's the same word. So really, God gets mentioned three times. Jehovah, Elohim, Jehovah. What's even more interesting is if you break down the word Elohim, it's actually a three-part a three word. It's a, three, it's a compounded word. 
So you're taking E, E-L is the word for God. O, which means to, is, is a, a joiner or a connection thing, a personal thing. And Elohim means multiple gods brought together. It's a plural word for God, as though you were saying gods. Jehovah, gods, Jehovah. It's a really interesting sentence when you put this down. So Elohim throughout the Bible is a plural word in its construct. It's always used in the singular throughout the Old Testament. So if you're ever talking to a Jewish person and they're trying to understand the Trinity, tell them to look up Elohim in the Hebrew and see if that's an, a plural word being used as a singular or if it's a singular word being used as singular. Because it's, always, it's, it's a plural use of gods being referred to as the one. It's like when you see me, you say, hey, Sean's, how are you doing? And you add an S to the end of my... So in the construct, you're using it one way, but in the usage, you're using it another way. Elohim's one of those words. So interestingly, you have three words for God being used in this sentence. The middle one is actually a plural use of God, and it's a three-letter three word. So the construct of it is perfect, and it's, it, it could be put on walls in a colorful little graphic display, and everything would be symmetrical, right? I love this stuff. It's so cool. So Paul assures that for Christians that, there, that this isn't a conflict, the conflict between a singular God or a three-in-one God. And he says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God. There's a Father that's the mind, there's Jesus, which was the body, and there's the Holy Spirit that's the soul. Interestingly, when he does that, he's referring to the Shema. Love the Lord God, three parts, with all of your three parts, your heart, your soul, and your strength, that we too are three-part beings, according to the biblical understanding of humanity. This is, you know, this is psychology before psychology became real. Right? This is the understanding that people have different elements to them. We have a mind, we have a heart, and we have our strength, our will, our force. So the three-part God gets loved by three-part humans. And Paul reassures people that that's not a problem or a conflict at all. Make sense? Amazing or what? I just This sentence is so cool. So humans then get treated as mind, spirit, body in the same way that God is mind, spirit, body. The human exists outside of the station, outside of our profession, we are and we exist outside of our culture. So that's packed into this, sense, uh, this sentence too. We are not the product of our families and we're not the product of our nation. We're the product of a God who created us. We are separate and distinct from those things and we can be made separate from those things because our heart, soul, and strength can be given over to a love of God, a hob, from our inside out. And that inside out is saying what's really the core of humanity is our ability to love God. Or to mess that up, commandment number one from the last chapter. So we love, ahab, a primitive root, means all senses of love. So I love the Hebrew, it has these primitive roots. So does Greek, actually. And it has basically means love in all forms. So in this sentence, it is not a particular kind of love. It's in all senses of love that gets used with that word. But it is the kind of love that comes from the inside out. Frankly, the, 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 if you look at Ahab, it means to breathe after something, to take our life and breathe after it. And I, again, what an image, right? That when we wake up in the morning and we take our first breath that we're conscious of, then we breathe that out. That breathing can be dedicated to God. So if you take the word literally, Ahab means to breathe out after something. Uh, it's not stuff. It's not time. It's love. That's what we give to God. Heart. 
Labab is our inner mind, our will, our soul, our thought. Heart gets used in, in relationship to courage often throughout the Old Testament. So when we love God with our heart, we give him our courage, right? When we're scared of if we want to say this or that to somebody or we're worried about how things are going to go, that's something we can consecrate and give to God. Soul is the word nephesh. Again, I told you there's a lot of Hebrew tonight. Nephesh is life, the thing that breathes. So we're supposed to, aha, breathe out our love with the thing that breathes in us. Uh, vitality, uh, nephesh is used with our lusts, those things we're passionate for, those things we sit up at night and say, oh, tomorrow I'm going to do this. That's nephesh. It's the stuff we dream of. This is interesting. This is not pop psychology. It's a very different breakdown of the human character and how humans are made, right? So one, what we think about, nefesh, what we passion after, our personality, so to speak, and then strength, ma'ad, is our muchness. <laughs> I like that in the translation too. Strong is good with this. It's the force or the power that we have, as small as it is. Whatever force we can exert, we can do that with our strength. Right? So it's not just physical strength, it's a strength of person that comes out. Our will, so to speak. You know, some people have strong wills and some people don't. Um, but some people have more ma'ad and some people have less. So that's how those words come together. I want to read the sentence one more time with all of that breaking down of it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the answer to everything. It really comes down to that. You could break the whole thing down just to that right there. If you can do that command, very difficult to do that command, but if you can do it, that's at the end of the day, that's what purity is. That's what holiness is. That's what righteousness is. Take what's inside of you and let it breathe out a love for God in every way, shape, and form. And that's Jesus' answer to people that were actually coming at him in a negative way. It's like, look, all we got to do is love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, and strength. Done. It's more important than any of the other commandments. God loves us first, and we love him back. He gives everything to us, and we give everything back. Wonderful relationship. I'll read the passage which I've been referring to in Matthew 22:34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Ever see people do that? They gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great, great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is a reference to Leviticus 19. Of, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So Jesus quotes this. That's the end of the conversation. He has trumped groups of Pharisees that have tried to plot and catch him and trick him with a very simple childlike concept. I don't Just love the Lord. That's the commandment. Then try to start loving your neighbors. Loving the Lord comes first. We love the Lord first, then we love our neighbors, which is my answer to most of the COVID things. Um, but we won't get into politics tonight. Um, External love of God is empty and it's vanity, commandment three. When we pretend to love God and it's fake, that's worse than just not pretending to love God at all. If we love God and it actually comes out of our heart, that we adore what the Lord has for us. And if you want to find ways to love the Lord, 
He just gave you an entire book that he's written throughout thousands of years of human history that he puts in our hand to just read. Because that's what the Lord did for us. So I even just pick up a Bible, and that's why some people revere the Bible. It's not an idol. Don't make it into that. But some people are just like, what a gift that if I want to know what the God of the universe thinks I should be doing today, I have the instructions right in front of me. And there it is. So, all right, we'll keep moving a little bit. Next, Moses is going to explain how to express our love for God. Because this is still pretty esoteric, right? This is kind of out in the clouds. Okay, now how do we do that? And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall be as a frontlet between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, well, there's some good tips. Remember the other week when we were talking about how we do Bible study? We're just giving tips on how to do Bible study. Instead of being Pharisees and reading this too literally, I would take it like this. Moses is following up the Shema with some suggestions. If you want to know how to do this, here's some suggestions on how to do it. That said, Jewish and Christian people all over the world, everywhere, have taken this and tried to do it. So if you go anywhere in America and look at most courthouses 20 years ago, most of them had the Ten Commandments posted somewhere in the courthouse. So they put them on their walls. A lot of people actually put things over their doorposts in Christian and Jewish societies. Even today, they still do it. We got one on our wall right there. So we're doing verse, you know, verse 9 when we write Bible verses on our stuff. So it's right in front of us where we need it. The frontlet between the eyes, Moses basically saying, put on your Bible goggles. See the whole world through this. Now, Pharisees, you know, actually took this literally. So they actually roll up the Shema in a little teeny piece of paper and they put it in a box and they wear it on a box right between their eyes. They took it literally. Not only that, but they started to think, I'm holier than you if my box is bigger than your box. So by the time Jesus comes around the first century, there were Jewish Pharisees wearing boxes on the front of their head. It's ridiculous, but think of the spirit behind that. I want the word of God right in front of me all the time. Meditate on it day and night. In the morning, when you go to bed, when you're sitting around your house, we actually open the Bible and read it and talk about it. Teach it to your kids. you know. And I, I think that to some degree, that's what a Bible study is. You can even teach it to your grandparents. Teach it to anybody who will listen to it because the law is good and it's holy and it's righteous and it's not legalistic and it's not binding. At the very basic, the essence of the law is this, they shall be in your heart. It's the same message Jesus had. There's no difference between the Old and New Testament. So as we get into all the little things on how to handle this and how to handle that, at the essence of it, it should just be in our heart and the rest of it is just suggestions. Putting them on your hand, that's something Jewish people will do too. They'll actually have little things they put on their hand. They'll hang it off their robe sometimes. They'll have little bells that go with them. Um, so if you put it in your heart, it means to memorize it. It should be dominating the way we think. It should talk about it. It should dominate the way we walk when you walk by the way. So a lot of times Christians will say, how's your walk? This is where that language comes from. And we have Christianese language, but it's because we read the Bible and we get words from the Bible that we use with each other. People getting introduced to Christian communities just hear that and they're like, what are you talking about? My walk? Where is that? But it says, you shall talk about them when you walk by the way. That By the way means kind of going down the way is the middle of the town. So when you're out in the market with people, 
you should be talking about the law. You know, how are, how's your devotions going? What's going on with you? Have you murdered anyone lately? You know, just small talk like that. And when you lie down, evening devotions, we already got that in Leviticus. When you rise up, morning devotions, we saw that in Leviticus. So just this idea of like, this is how you do it. So Moses has kind of said this before. It's interesting, one other little piece, the hand and the, the between your eyes, the hand and the forehead are the same thing that in the book of Revelation, thir chapter 13, verse 16, the Antichrist will actually use the hand and the forehead as where you proclaim his name taking the place of these verses. Highly offensive, because God can be set aside and you're going to put this other person, this human, in the place of the real God and make him your God. Like in North Korea, every morning they wake up, they're supposed to pray to their uh, Kim Jong-ul or whoever, was that the right name? Am I saying it right? Anyone? Yeah. Oh, his son, though. So then they start praying to him. Oops. The eternal one died, I guess. So... <laughs> We went, yeah, we went. So those boxes that they nailed to the doorpost, I think those are really cool too. I remember we went in to see pages of the illuminated Bible that were on display at the Minneapolis Art Museum. And they had mezuzahs around there too, which are these Jewish boxes that people would actually hang in the doorpost. And they would put the scrolls of the Old Testament or the Torah in those boxes. So you're walking in, there's your scrolls right there. Uh, and those are mezuzahs. So Little boxes on the forehead are called phylacteries, and it's like you're putting your soul in that little box. This is my heart. Um, and you show people what you're doing and how you're doing about it. So you're supposed to tell them to your kids. Look at that real carefully. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house or your gates. So where was I looking? You shall teach them diligently to your children. This is an interesting concept. And me being a homeschool fan, like it becomes the responsibility of the parents to teach the law to their own kids. That is your first responsibility. You want to know how to do this? Teach this and take responsibility for teaching it to other people. Be diligent in it. Don't give up. Do it. I felt really bad because we used to do, every night before supper, we used to do a chapter of the Bible. It was the precursor to this Bible study. I only stopped doing it when we started this Bible study. And I was like, why are we doing that? So we started, we rebooted that because I felt really convicted last week with the teaching because I'm listening to my own teaching. And we started doing the New Testament just every night before supper. We'll just do a chapter of it every night. And we don't even talk about it. It's not like an in-depth Bible study or anything. But we're just reading a chapter, and then we, we pray for dinner, and then we eat dinner. And there, that's a suggestion, by the way. That's just how we do it. So, And I'll get into that a little more tonight, the difference between devotion and legalism. But the idea here is devotion, right? This is how you do it. This is where the, the rabbi, the Pharisees messed up. They thought that the boxes were the most important thing. And that the bazoozas on the door were the most important thing. And the phylacteries on their, their palms were the most important thing. And if those things are all in place, they're good. And they missed the heart of the law. And that's what Jesus, I think, really had the biggest issue with them on. So we teach our kids because they ask and they're wired to learn. So if you're doing all these things and you're living it out, at some point your kids will start to ask you about it. And if you're lucky, they'll ask you less than thousands of questions. So it's not hard to teach your kids because when they're young, they just are rapid fire questions all the time. It's how kids are. God made them that way so that godly families can teach their kids if they're diligent about it. If you're not diligent about it, you just become a Sunday morning family. Um, but we are to teach them. In fact, our relationship with God then becomes a love relationship. 
And that idea of loving God just comes up over and over and over again. But it's our responsibility to teach our kids. That's going to get repeated 15 times in the next five chapters. Teach this to your kids. Teach this to your kids. Teach this to your kids. I won't do all 15 times. Verse 10. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you didn't build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you didn't plant, and when you've eaten you are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. God has other people preparing the land. He's had these people living in this land for a while. And most of the people of Canaan are going to pack up and leave when they hear the Israelites are coming. So most of the conflict that's going to happen, God's already taken care of spiritually. And they're packing up and they're getting out of their way. And we know that from diaspora records and because the Bible says so. Success, though, is the danger What's interesting is people can read a verse like that and think, well, that's a danger for the Israelites, but it's not one for me. When you've eaten and you're full and you've got everything in life you need to have, that's the most dangerous spot we can be as believers. It's the most dangerous. I think young people, you're like, I want to get my house. I want to get this because everybody tells me I need to have these things in line and then I have a life. And then you realize that's not a life, that life is really found in Christ. And you just went out, you just spent 15, 20 years going after stuff that doesn't add a lot. And then you get to this place where you're in real danger. Beware, verse 12. And the danger is you forget who put you there. You forget all the open doors that God gave you. You forget that that first job you got was an absolute blessing that you really didn't know how to orchestrate because you hadn't been, you weren't a professional until you got your first job. So you forget those things that God gave you and you just get satisfied with the world and you forget God. And that's what's going to happen to the Israelites round after round. But what a warning. You did not are the words that are there. You did not do these things again and again and again. And you take them for granted. And the words are build, fill, dig, plant. Cities, houses, wells with water, crops with food. So that's, you didn't make the city you live in, which gives you all the kind of sewage and all that sort of thing. The house you live in, which gives you shelter and food and water. That those are things that are there. We enjoy all of those things. All of us do their basic needs. So this list we get in verses 10 through 11 are kind of basic needs that everybody has. Jericho is going to get destroyed. The rest of the cities are going to either be abandoned or they're going to be conquered where nobody get, nothing gets destroyed. This causes an archaeological record problem because the Bible says there was a conquest that happened. The archaeological record says, well, there was clearly a conquest in Jericho, but all these other cities, there's no sign of destruction. Like they would just were abandoned and there was a continuous line of people there. Um, actually, the Bible does agree with that archaeological record, but it's hard to find a conquest that happened to this period in history because there's no record of destruction because the destruction never happened. There, it wasn't that kind of a conquest. But don't take God for granted. Then verse 13, you shall feel, fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. Now, remember, we've heard oaths before. Don't take oaths if you don't have to. But if we take oaths in any other name, they're not. there are times where you do make oaths. They're the big ones in life. You get married in God's name and make an oath, right? You, you dedicate your child at church and you make an oath to care for that child. 
So we do make oaths in the Lord's name, and we're supposed to do that. Um, one of the verses that Jesus quotes when he's tempted is this one right here. In Matthew 4, 8 through 10, he's tempted by Satan, and he's, he basically returns and says, we serve God, we don't serve anything else. So when an oath is not in vain, it's a lifetime commitment under God. If it's a false oath, it's very, very ugly, and it's destructive because you become a person that doesn't reflect God. Because when God says something, it's real. So when you do take an oath, it should be a lifetime oath. The sanctity of marriage comes right down to this idea that when we make an oath, we're making it to God. We're not making it to the other person, right? And it's awfully nice when you can spend time with the other person too. Nothing against that. But that oath you made is in God's name. You're making an oath to God to care for that other person for the rest of your life. It's a big oath. Don't take them lightly. So fear God, serve him, take oaths in his name. Three active things and day-to-day -day verbs that we can just do. Here's a really lightweight way to see oaths. And I first ran into this a while ago with one of my brothers. We were trying to get together for coffee. And I said, okay, so we got a time. And we're like, yeah, Tuesday morning at three or five or six, whenever we got together. And then he goes, okay, I'll be there, Lord willing. And I'm like, didn't we just make an appointment? But he was making an oath but he was putting it in the Lord's name. If the Lord wants me to be there, I'll be there. If something gets in the way, the Lord wants me to do something else, you're going to be stood up. So let's just, even when you make, so even at a really, if you want to take that really seriously in your life, you, you can bring it all the way down to just when you say yes or no to people. You say, if the Lord wills it, then yes, I'm with you. But my strength doesn't matter before the Lord's strength. I'll be there if I can, is putting it on me. I'll be there if the Lord wills it, it puts it on God. And that everything we do, every word out of our mouth gets conditioned with the Lord. That's pretty extreme, but it's also kind of beautiful if you think about it, right? It's total submission to God. People try to do both sometimes, right? This idea of serve, by the way, in verse 13 is avad. It means total ownership forever. So when you give your service, you're actually giving yourself over as a slave to that person you serve. Right? And remember the law of the doorposts where you get your ear knocked under the door when we covered that chapter? This is the same word that's being used. To serve him means to serve him as a slave, not an employee for a part-time job. It's to serve him completely and totally. You become that person's steward of whatever they want you in charge of. So this is very, in the, in the ancient world, that was a common concept. It's not so common in our economy and in our culture, but it was a lifetime act of service that a person could give to somebody else. All in, all the time, I represent that household or that family or whoever I work for. People try to do both. They try to serve themselves and they try to serve God. And they try to find some sort of balance between those two. And I can only speak from personal experience. The balance doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And the Bible says you can't serve both God and man. Because one will hate you if, if you give too much time to the other. Because God's a jealous God. But so's the world. The world wants you too, and will do anything they can do to get it. Matthew 25, 21, just to connect this to the New Testament. And the Lord said to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, and I will make you a ruler over many. Enter your joy in the Lord. That's one way you can be greeted by God. Notice the greeting in Matthew 25 is that you're greeted as a servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have served me, and you have been totally devoted to me. Here's the other way you can get greeted by God. It's not the same kind of pleasant welcome. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The law is that important. It is following the law or making an attempt to care to keep the law is the difference between our eternal salvation and not. So being a servant in verse 13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and take oaths in his name actually has something to do with us living a long time. Or if you go back to, was it verse 9, that it'll be well with you. That's the whole point of this. So when we take oaths, that lost art, we express our loyalty, we start really simple, we do things really basic, but ultimately it leads to a massive life commitment that you make to the Lord. And I think that's just wonderful. And God will say to you, do whatever you got to do in life to figure out that there's nothing out there besides the king. So there's actually this idea of run hot or cold. And I really like that idea. God doesn't like lukewarm. If you're running hot, you're going to get to that point of exhaustion or brokenness much quicker than if you just get kind of okay with what you have and be lukewarm. So run hot. It's funny because sometimes we've had friends where it's like, would you just talk to my son? He's out of control. And I'm like, well, good. At least he's not dead. You know, as long as out of control doesn't mean dead, he still has a chance. So that it's not over until it's over. So a lot of people go down that road, but then when they come to the Lord, they know what they're getting. They know that the world is that worthless and the king is that precious. And that decision becomes just glorious. But much better, as Grant would always say, much better to learn that lesson without touching the stove and just learn it from the wisdom of the word of God. And just say, okay, I'm going to give my whole life to the Lord. I don't need to go down that path to figure this out. I luckily had family members who went down that path. And I got to watch them. And then say, hmm, I don't think so. I'm going to choose a different direction. And that's a good thing too. So give God your whole thing. I just love this. So that's the teaching kind of on commandment one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. So that's the first commandment. Then we kind of transition and, and Moses kind of gets into commandment number two. You see how he's just teaching each of the commandments? And so it goes, verse 14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of all the people who are around you. So they're going to go into this land, Canaan, and the Canaanites had multiple gods all around them. So they're going to be surrounded as a nation by people who serve false gods, right? And we've already seen with the women of, of the uh, Moabites that have come down and tried to lure away Israelites, that luring from these people around them, we're going to go there all the time. It's no different today. You walk outside these doors and you go driving down the highway, you got billboards telling you what you should go after, right? You turn on a TV set, you got advertisements telling you what you should love and what you should give your heart to and what you should work for and pine for. You turn on the internet and there's like little ads all around everything you're trying to look at and read. So it's impossible to escape false gods that are everywhere all around you. We live inside of that world and there's no way around it. And the only protection for that is to choose God instead of those things. In verse 14, I like how Moses uses the word go after. Putting the personal responsibility back on us, we choose what we go after. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. The only God you have is, are you a slave to your king or aren't you? That's the only God that you have. We'll get into that more. No, I'm going to do it right now. So going after is the positive. The negative is making excuses. Think about it. We all, all of us make excuses for things all the time when we have something else we're choosing. 
So when I choose Bible study on Sunday nights, then I have to tell other people, no, I'm busy on Sunday nights. Or I make excuses to them. Well, I can't. I have Bible study. So there's your excuse. The excuse is the thing you make for the thing that you, you make excuses for the thing you serve. And it's really easy to see what people worship when two things get put next to each other and they have to make a choice between the two things. Right? Now let me talk about this. There's a difference between devotion and legalism. This is a fine line you got to walk. But I want to get into it a little bit because when it says you shall not go after other gods, the word you means this is a directive to you as an individual. It does not say you shall get other people to not go after other gods. Nowhere in the Bible does it really say that's your job. But we do that all the time. And here, I think this is why. Devotion is when I make choices to choose God my way. Reading the Bible before supper every night. Doing Bible study on Sunday nights with my family and friends. Uh, waking up in the morning and doing Bible study with Steph every day. Those are little devotional things that we've done in our life that help draw us closer to the Lord. Going to bed tonight and saying my individual prayers. And just talking to the God before I fall asleep. Usually I fall asleep while talking to God. And then he goes right into my dreams. I love it. It's super slick. right? And, you're, and so those are all things that work for me. That's devotion. And they're rules I've made in my life. Like I'm going to structure and choose and put my will towards this. And I'll make excuses for everything that the world has. No, I got excuses for that because I serve God. This comes first. Does that make sense? Legalism is the second I start telling you that that's how you have to do it. That's the danger of teaching. It's the danger the Pharisees fell into. When I start saying, oh, no, 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 here's how you do it. You got to do this. I'm putting that like you are in chains to me, and that's wrong. You're in chains to God. It's between you. My job is just to point you to the Lord. That's the difference between devotion and legalism. And they're both really intense. Highly devoted people are intense people. Highly legalistic people are very intense people. All of their strength, like the Shema, that will is strong, right? Paul, remember the other week, he's like, I've been reading through the Bible for 40 years. And I'm like, I, I'm super impressed with that. I, don't, I haven't been doing it that long, but that's impressive, Paul. And you just feel the joy and grace and mercy coming off that guy every second of his life. It's like total a blessing. But never once have I heard him say, Sean, you got to do it like this. Because he knows that's not what you do. All we can say is that we're going after God with all our heart, mind, and soul. That's all we got. The tendency for non-believers when they hear that, and you all know this, you're all already nodding your head, they can't grasp the idea of devotion because they're blind to it. All they can grasp is legalism because that's obvious and human and in the flesh. So when I say, oh, I'm doing this and I'm so blessed by it, whatever it is, Bible study Sunday nights, man, it just feeds me every week. It's so great. All they hear is legalism when I say that. And they're like, wow, that just sounds like you're a little overcommitted or or worse yet, they think you're accusing them when you say it because it's all they hear. Or are you trying to say, I need to do Bible studies too? No, I wasn't saying that at all. Peace, brother. I'm just saying how much I'm blessed by it. But that's a tough conversation because you're talking to somebody who's not devoted. They don't know the blessings of devotion. They don't know that how amazing that is. You wouldn't believe I'm up all night just spinning after I hang out for a worship. I go out to a worship concert and hear need to breathe, and I'm coming home and I'm totally blessed by it, I'm just wired by it, try to tell somebody about that who never went to the concert. They just look at you like you're nuts. 
but you're just wired up. You're thinking that is the Lord moving in my heart or you're doing door to door stuff and somebody commits their life to the Lord. And you're like, this is amazing. Or you get your grandpa and grandma to do a Bible study with you. And you're just like, ah, oh, grandma, and grandma, do a Bible study with me. People who aren't devoted just see that as legalism. Why would you waste your time on that? Because I'm a slave to the King. I serve my father. And this is me getting a chance to serve my father. He's opened a door for me. What else in life could get in the way of that or be more important than that? Well, what about your job? Who cares about my job? I make enough money. I eat food. Even as the Lord cares for little birdies, he cares for me. I'm taken care of. That part's good. I don't need to be rich. I just need to be fed. So the difference when, when we talk to people who aren't believers and it says you shall go after no other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, we have to interact with the people around us. But we're set apart from those people. And I think this is theologically the difference. And it's the core of it. There is devotion and love and there's legalism and judgment. And from the outside, they look identical. You're just legalistic. No, I'm devoted, right? You're just judging me. No, I'm loving you. And they're the same thing from the outside. And until somebody's inside, they don't get it. And in the Christian community, we start telling stories about what's going on and other people just say, oh, praise the Lord. There's no guilt. There's no shame because I got my devotion. You got your devotion. We're both following the Lord. I'm not in competition with you. I'm not less holy because you're doing things that are more holy, right? Only non-believers really get into that mode. And frankly, people who call on the name of the Lord get into that mode. And it gets to be that kind of thing. So you want to test the theory. Just go to somebody who's a lukewarm believer and say, I've decided I'm going to do two hours of Bible study every morning. Just try it. You don't even have to do it. Just lie, right? <laughs> and then watch how they react. And some people who get it would be, there's some people that'll go, oh, praise the Lord. That's amazing. You're like Martin Luther. I mean, that's awesome. Good for you. And then you're going to other people saying, don't you think that's a bit extreme? And it's just all they hear is legalism and judgmentalism. And they don't get it because they don't get life from God. So they don't understand why you're going back to the well as much as you can. So we set our hearts on things that are above. And sometimes people who don't get it, that just looks like arrogance. What do you think you're better than me? No, I don't think I'm better than you. I just love the Lord. That's all I'm trying to do. I won't tell you about the Lord if you don't want me to, but that's all that's coming out of my heart and mind and soul. It's that thing on my forehead that you can see when you look at me, right? And it's, it's right there for me, and it's all I see. So we do this, and we do this because Jesus did this, John 18. Pilate asked Jesus if he's the king, right? And Jesus' response, I love this. Are you speaking for yourself, or did others tell you? And I love how Jesus handles that. When somebody says, oh, what are you doing for the kingdom? And who do you think you are? You're just like, are you asking me that because you want to know? Or are you asking me that because other, told, because other people told you that what I'm doing is not okay? That's a great way to respond to it. That's not judgmental or arrogant. You're just trying to identify who you're talking to. Because some people say, why do you do all that Bible study? And then other people say, why do you do all that Bible study? And it sounds a lot alike. The difference is where you're coming from. So Pilate basically says, no, I'm doing this because the Jewish people don't like you, <laughs> right? And if you say this, then you're going to claim to be king and I'm going to get you. And Jesus responds and he says, my kingdom's not of this world. What a great response. What I'm going after is not here. What you're going after might be here, but what I'm going after, it's not here anymore. I love how Jesus handles this. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. 
what a great example from Jesus on how to handle those people. Are you speaking for yourself or others? My kingdom's not of this world. I just don't want what you want. So, do you want to get together and play computer games? I'm going to deliver saturate packets. Wow, man, computer games are way more fun than doing that. I don't know. I'm kind of going after the kingdom. And whatever free time I got, I want to be doing that and not that. Like, I'm just making a choice. You want to come with? No, I'm going to go play computer games. Now, we struggle with this because in our family, we play computer games in our free time, right? So I use that because I'm convicting myself. I'm not being judgmental, Grant. But for me, how can I reduce the time that I'm playing games and increase the time I commit to my king? Because even if you're a servant and a bond servant in a household, you have some evening time to hang out and read a book. I mean, it's not like you work 16 hours a day. So, but how can I give as much as I can to my king? And that's kind of our conversation. Somebody basically called, fill in the blank. Hey, do you want to blank, fill in blank with whatever wastes your time? And then you say, why would I do that? Are you pursuing the king or are you pursuing yourself? This isn't a religion thing. Okay, then no. I'm, no, thank you. I'm good. Time waste is not what I'm after. Kingdom is what I'm after. I've made a choice and I'm going to pursue kingdom. I know I beat that point over the head a lot, <laughs> but I was so moved by this one sentence. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. And all I could think is, okay, how do I deal with those people? They're all around me. They're everywhere. They're all over the place. Then it gets to verse 15. This is a great chapter. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. <laughs> One reason to become a believer is because you love the Lord. Reason number two is you're scared to death of hell, right? And those are two valid, logical reasons to pursue the kingdom. And some people come into the kingdom because of the love, and some people come into the kingdom because of the fiery brimstone that's coming after them. But, you know, those kinds of sermons that come around. And people are like, dang, I don't want to go to hell. I choose God. And then there are different ways to come into the kingdom, but both of them can lead to the Lord. Moses uses both here in verse 15. He uses the second one. Verse 16, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him at Massah. Massah is back in Exodus 17. You can go back and listen to the podcast if you want to. Um, Israel doubts God's love in chapter 17, and that's the temptation that's here doubting God's love. So this idea, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, by the way, is a second response from Jesus when he's being tempted by the enemy. And this is one that he whips out. And I'll read it to you. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, the, the devil, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So the temptation is, you need to just like do dumb stuff to prove how gracious God is. Right? Isn't that what the world asks us to do a lot? Do dumb stuff and then God will still love you. It's cool. You can dabble here and not dabble there. And Jesus is like, why would I tempt the Lord my God? I love my God. Why would I go and do stuff that just ticks him off? Right? Why would I eat that extra chocolate that my dad has hidden in his desk when I don't have to? Right? The chocolate might be sweet, but I'd rather have the love of my father in heaven. Sure. sure. God's not our toy, and we don't get to show him off for other people. That's not the point of our belief. It's not the purpose of it. 
We're not the Christian person in our group of friends. That's not why we're there. We're not there to be a token believer. We're there to serve the Lord. No other God and nothing else in the world fills you up. God is a jealous God here. We've talked about that use of the word jealousy in past chapters. Obviously, it's not that God's needy. It's that God wants a covenant with you. And it's the same kind of jealousy that a a wife and a husband should have for one another. If you love that person, you don't share them. I don't share my wife with other men. That would be sick and weird, right? And corrupt and vile. My wife's precious to me. I don't share her. I'm very jealous of her in a positive way, not out of a neediness or an insecurity, but because we have a covenant and we swore to each other in the name of God that we were going to love each other for the rest of our days. That's a big deal. Yes? So God has that kind of same feeling with us. We're his. We belong to him. He loves us. We've made a covenant with him. If that covenant's real, you don't just slop that around to places. And, and it, because that's sick and weird and gross and corrupt and evil. So, and then it gets into this little, this little piece here. Well, one other thought about God being a jealous God. Dabbling with impurity is polluting. Like, if you told me there was only a little bit of mud in my milk glass, I wouldn't drink the milk. And that's kind of our relationship with God. When we introduce or dabble with sin in the face of God after we've made a covenant with him, we're doing something that's absolutely wrecking the relationship. So we don't do that. Luckily, there's forgiveness and repentance and all of those things, but we don't actively dabble or try things to see that God will forgive us because he's not our toy. It's a much bigger deal than that. So, or that will destroy you from the face of the earth, just like Israel and the promised land. This is valid. The Israelites will be destroyed from the face of their inherited land in a literal sense. In a spiritual sense, this is also true. It's true in both senses. And I love how Hebrew works like that. So Grandpa Moses is sitting down. He's teaching the grandkids. He tells them basically, don't dabble with this stuff. Don't tempt the Lord your God like your parents did at Massah. Don't get in that kind of trouble. So, verse 17, You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies, his statutes, which he has commanded you. All right. This is tough for people. This is what, again, this chapter so loaded. Commands, statutes, commands. We should keep the commands, his testimonies, his stories, his statutes, these things that Moses is about to give and has given that he's commanded us to do. We're supposed to tell God's stories and do what he's commanded us to do. I love the tell God stories parts because we can do that as a body of believers all the time. Well, this week we did this and this happened and we talked to so-and-so and so-and got saved. We can also tell the stories that we see in the Old Testament. So when you're in situations or you're in conversation with people you can say oh that reminds me of king david boy that reminds me of of isaac digging his wells that reminds me of joseph in egypt and how he treated his brothers and you constantly bring up those stories those testimonies of god but also testimonies in our lives too and then the statutes and the laws are just living it so serving god equals a freedom to do these kinds of things when we're diligent in keeping them when we keep the stories and we keep the law We have complete freedom in our life. This is a tough concept for people, yes? Like, this is hard. How does following laws equal freedom? And I I would suggest to you that conflict is only the result of the last 40 years of American history. 
because our culture has shifted and attacked the idea of service and freedom. That those two concepts have been corrupted by our culture deeply to where it's very hard for us to understand those. And I want to unpack it a little bit. Our level of freedom biblically is based on who we obey because we are built to obey something. And whatever we obey, that's the scale or scope of what we, of what we have freedom in. And I'll break this down a little bit. Freedom then, <laughs> freedom in America is to do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it, right? Freedom is just do as you please. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. The problem with that freedom is then you become a slave to your sins and your wants and the expectations of the culture around you. In fact, if you obey yourself, admittedly, that's a scope of obedience. But if I obey myself in all things, I then essentially become free from any kind of self-guilt or self-conscious, right? I'm free from my own conscience, but I'm also a slave to my lusts. And that's the part that people go down that path, they figure it out. If I'm free to get angry whenever I want and not feel guilty about it, maybe that's a kind of freedom, but I'm essentially then a slave to my anger. I'm a slave to a very small scale thing, which is me, the individual. Anger, lust, greed, pride, chalk it up. I can pursue as much money as I want, but then I'm a slave to everything I own. Trust me, talk to anybody who has multiple properties, right? You become a slave to all that stuff you just bought. And you, be, you become a slave to yourself, very small scale. Take it up a notch. If I obey other people and I do what other people want me to do so I make other people happy, I'm free from their scorn. I do get a, a sense of freedom. I'm free from scorn. I'm free from people being upset with me. I'm free from conflict because I make everybody happy, but I'm a slave to the expectations that other people have of me. My obedience and my freedom and my slavery all are at the same level. If I obey US laws, I'm free from the cops and I'm free from prison. Little bigger scale. I can move around freely as I please. But I'm also a slave to the mandates of governors when they tell me I have to do this or I have to do that. Right? Any mandate. Depending on the country I'm in, those mandates can defy God even. And so then you take it up another level. Let's say I obey God and I'm free from sin. That's good. That's a much bigger, more eternal scale. But I'm a slave to the law. I'm absolutely a slave to the law. That's where the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. They were slave to the law. And there's no hope and there's no joy in that. Take it up another notch. If I obey Christ, I'm actually free from condemnation under that law. And I'm a slave to Christ. I have to pick it. It all goes together. I'm a slave to, or I'll say it again, our level of freedom is based on who we obey. And it kind of goes all the way up the scale. We can obey whatever we want to, but then we're a slave to that same thing that we obey. It all comes into the thing. Um, I'm going to go to Romans 8 because I love how they cover this. It's the same concept in the New Testament. And this is the idea of Christ Jesus. And this is where I got the word condemnation from. Therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. I serve Christ, I'm free from sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned the sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might actually be fulfilled in us 
who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. Jesus is proof that the flesh could live a sin-free life. We can actually live in that as we put ourselves as bondservants to Jesus Christ. His righteousness redeems us as part of his household. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Your, your freedom is a directly in relation to what you choose to obey. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, and nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, and indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. It's a simple enough idea that a child can understand it, it's so complex that the older you get, you realize how thick with meaning and intent that is. It's a powerful passage. Our lives, I'll take it up another one, are only as relevant as who we obey. We're only as important as who we serve. So if you choose to serve yourself, you're not a very important person. In fact, most of your friends will abandon you at some point because you're selfish. If you choose to serve your friends, you're also not that important but your friends will hang around with you. If you choose to serve a living God, you might not have your friends anymore. You might get different friends, but you're serving a living God and your living God will take you in. And it, it's such an amazing concept. It's only as meaningful as we choose to make meaning out of our life. Ourselves is the smallest possible unit of obedience. It's the most selfish, the most, the simplest, the easiest, because I don't ever have to wonder what my king wants me to do. I just do whatever I feel like. So it's sloppy and easy. But it's also empty and dead and it leads to sin and death. On that same note, I think this is important with Bible teaching. Don't ever follow me. Follow God. Follow the Lord. All I'm here to do is share what the Word of God says so you can follow the king, not follow me. And that's a danger in some communities and some churches when you get a really charismatic teacher, our tendency is to follow them and what they say we should be doing instead of following the king. And I'm, most teachers don't even intend for that to happen. I'm just gonna do what my teacher says and then I'm good. No, start with a relationship with God and do what the Lord tells you to do and you're never good, you're fallen. You're only as good as your master. And don't choose another human as a master don't do that. You see how we're getting into commandment three here, right? Put God in front. Don't follow other idols. Follow the Lord. This also becomes a way we talk to non-believers. Non oh, you're, you're upset. You're depressed. You're down. You're angry. You're insecure. Choose God. Follow God. God you're, you're, all of those things are because you're looking at yourself. If your master is you, then it's awfully easy to get depressed because you aren't that important. If your master is other people, it's easy to get angry because other people are also not that important and they're fallen creatures, right? And if your eyes are on other people all the time, you're always gonna be upset or left out or um, easily angered, right? That's not love either. So remember when Moses last chapter used the word tov? contentment, just to be okay with what you got, what you've been provided. He adds to that concept in the next section, and I like that. 
By the way, it's saying that argue of freedom and it's what is great for prison ministries. If you're in a jail cell, pick a new master and then you're not in a jail cell anymore. Because if you pick a master that's eternal, the physical stuff isn't what you're serving anyways. So it's, anyways. Verse 18, Moses goes from Tov here. I love this. I even got carried away and started telling stuff about it this week. You shall do what is right and good. That's the word Tov, good. In the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with you. And that you may go in and possess the good land which the Lord swore to your fathers to cast out all enemies from before you as the Lord has spoken. That's where God says, I have spoken. Mandalorian reference. Yeah. Regular and rhythmic repeated rationale for why we follow God that we've seen is that it might be well with you. Why do you follow God? So that it'll be well with you. In the last chapter, that sentence, that it might be well with you, used tov. Moses doesn't use that word here. He changes it which in the English, you got to change it too. I don't get why they would do that because we lose a lot of meaning when we don't change the word, but they use the word that it might be well with you. But in verse 18, that word is yatab, different word. So what's the difference between tov and yatab? It's this. When I fill my cup up with a nice glass of cherry Coke and it is full, I am content. I have a glass of cherry Coke. That's tov. When Grant keeps pouring and the cherry Coke overflows, all over my hand, onto the table, onto the floor, and he's still pouring it, that's yatab. Tov is to be good in life. Yatab is to be absolutely exuberant, overflowing, amazing. Wow. So if I'm well, at peace and content, and then look at the sentence structure, because he didn't lose tov, he just moved it into this, that you should do what is right and content. Your goal should be to seek to be at peace. I'm just good with what the Lord's provided. That's what you do. That it might be yatab with you. That's what God does. Our goal isn't exuberance. Our goal isn't overflowing abundance. That means we're at a nightclub every night, right? Shouting and yelling and getting all, ah, right? But that's not our goal. Our goal is contentment, peace, gentleness. And the result of that attitude results in overflowing exuberance that the world doesn't even understand. You are a Jesus freak. Yes, I am. I love the Lord. It's exuberant. You should come with me. That's judgmentalism. No, that's devotion. I'm not judging you. I'm inviting you. It's a difference. Yatab actually means glad, happy, joy-filled, ecstatic, amazing, abundant, and overflowing. That's yatab. Absolutely. We seek peace, we get yatab. We get way more than what we pay for. Isn't that great? You shall do what is right, follow the law, and good, tov, contentment, in the sight of the Lord, that it might be exuberant with you, that you may go in and possess the land of the Lord, which swore to your follow. And then get this, here's the result of exuberant. It casts out all enemies from before you, as the Lord has spoken. Usually they just shake their heads and walk away. That person is nuts. And you're like, yes, I am. I have a different master. I serve a different king. It's amazing. So you follow the commandments. You do what you think you can do. You live the best life you can live. Man, this isn't judgmentalism. This isn't a cruel Old Testament. This is awesome. This is exactly what Jesus taught. Just try to do the right thing. And God loves you for doing that. If you do what is tov, the best you can get, the worst you're going to get is tov. 
the best you're going to get is yatab. So I'll go for tov and I'll see what God does with my life. And if he wants to make my cup overflowing, oh yeah, that gets used elsewhere in the Bible too. Your cup shall overfloweth. It's the same idea. When we're overflowing, enemies just give way. They might mock us, they might scorn us, and they might scoff us, but they still give away because they can't do anything in the face of happiness. There's nothing you can really do. 1 John 4, 4, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. When you're yatab, the enemy really can't do much about that. They can just mock and scorn and attack you, and you're just like, I'm good. Do whatever you got to do. I don't serve you. Love you, but I don't serve you. The hardest thing is to say that to family, right? I, don't, I love you, but I don't serve you. I serve the king. He that's in us is greater than, the, than he who is in the world. We are who we serve. And Moses, I think, is driving this point home. I'll give you one more New Testament reference. Romans 8, verse 10. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who has raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who has raised Christ from the dead also gives life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit's a big deal because the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. That same spirit, according to Romans, is in you right now. So that's when Christians start talking about quenching the spirit or living in that abundance of spirit. That's a tough line to draw, right? But err on the side of letting that, cutting that spirit loose, right? And we'll, we'd rather deal with weirdos than deal with lukewarmos, which I don't know if that's a word. <laughs> when people say this law idea, it's such a tricky idea right now. We've got people throwing out the whole Old Testament. I don't do the old law. That's the Old Testament. Nonsense. The Old, the old Testament defines what's good and pure and right. Why would you throw that out? We want to keep it. We want to love the Lord, and we want to love the Lord. Jesus said, "I didn't come to 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 uh, I didn't come to abolish to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. I am the law. I'm the I'm the fulfillment of what that looks like in a person's life. I'm somebody living under the law to the letter. And he didn't serve the Pharisees. He loved the Pharisees, but he didn't serve them. And it really ticked the Pharisees off because some people don't like it if you don't serve them. So." When somebody's like, wow, you living under the law? That's so legalistic. No, it's not. It's just a choice. I choose the law. I'm not, I'm not legalistic. Legalistic is if I told you to live under the law. If I tell me to live under the law, that's called devotion. And I like devotion. And I'd encourage you to have more devotion because you're mean. Don't say that last part. I'd leave the last part off. That was said in the flesh. That wasn't Moses talking from the Bible. So we obey, we obey ourselves. We're free from guilt. We obey others, we're free from scorn. We obey Christ, we're free from condemnation. It's that easy, right? Those that follow themselves are in the jail of their own conviction. Those who follow others are in the jail of legalism. Those who follow Christ never end up in jail because it's eternal life and freedom. I don't want to be in a jail. That's why I choose Jesus. I'm not interested in fire and brimstone and death. I don't, those are bad things. I don't need to go experience them to know that I don't want them. So I choose life so that I might live. Casting out all your enemies is the word hadaf. It means to push or throw, expel. It implies that you're moving something with force from inside to outside. 
the strong implication of casting out all your enemies is to deal with you. It's not about combating other people or getting other people out of your life. It's about dealing with those things that are inside you, hadaf, to with force push them out of you. Jesus even said, like, look, if your eye makes you sin, pluck it out. If your arm makes you sin, cut it off. You have to deal with you, and what, and that's that force, hadaf. You take as much force as you can, you get the sin out of your life. It's killing you. Get rid of it. Stop it. And that's so hard to do because sin becomes its own jail, doesn't it? You got to break those bonds. In fact, you're going to find the harder you try, the more you can't break those bonds. Sin has you in a jail. The only one that can let you out is the person with the key. And that Holy Spirit, that tov moving to uh, yatab, the overflowing is what pushes out the other stuff. If you're settled on the word, meditating on the law day and night, using all your heart, mind, and strength to do what's right, there's no room left for sin. You wake up one day and realize, I don't even struggle with that stuff anymore. It just went away. I know a guy who got saved with his wife and they were both drinkers and smokers and they got saved and then they woke up the next day and said, I, I want to just see what this Jesus stuff is all about and they forgot to smoke the next day. And they say smoking is this powerful addiction. These two people just never smoked again and it's been 30 years. They just stopped because when you're focused on the Lord, other stuff doesn't have room left. And that I think when it says casting out all your enemies, it's a very personal connotation in that sentence. Everything else, when you focus on God, looks a little bit not so great. And it's hard to explain that. Teach that to your kids. You know, those Star Wars toys are not that great. Kids are like, no, yeah, they are. They're the best. All right, here's some Star Wars toys. See how long they stay the best. Try it out as long as you need to. I'll keep going. Because it goes right to kids. That's why I'm going there. Verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying... What's the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments which the Lord has commanded to you? At some point, people are going to ask you, what does this all mean to you? At some point. And notice that the phrase in time is in verse 20. This takes time. It takes relationship. You people you know won't ask these kinds of questions right off the bat. It takes time. And that's cool. Then you shall say to your son, we were slaves in, of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. I've been saved because I used to be in prison, and now I'm not. Verse 22, the Lord showed signs and wonders before your eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Not only was I a slave and now I'm not, I've seen God do amazing things. Verse 23, then he brought us out from there and he might bring us in to give us the land that he swore to our fathers. Not only have I seen God do amazing things, my life is better. Right? Verse 24, and the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good always that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Not only did I used to be a slave and now I'm saved and I've seen God do amazing things and my life is just better, he also gave us the law. He told us how to live. So I'm just trying to do that. Verse 25, then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all of these commandments before the Lord our God as he's commanded us. Now I'm just trying to live under the law because I love the Lord. I was a slave. Now I'm not. I've seen God do amazing things. My life is better. <clears throat> he gave us the word of God. I'm reading it. And I'm just trying to do what it says. That's a testimony. So when somebody says, can you bear witness? That's our instruction for how to bear witness in, in, in five easy verses. I love this chapter. Like this is how to live life. Isn't that just great? 
So in time, when somebody, especially your children, the first thing is your family, somebody asks you, like, what's, what's up with you? That's your answer to the question. It's really easy. Moses gives his version of it. God's primary mission in calling to the Jews was to teach their kids, point them to God. Humans are wired for stories, and I love that part of our testimony is to tell our story, that stories are actually how we communicate spiritual truths to one another. It's amazing. One danger and pitfall of telling our stories, when our story is full of all the horrible, nasty, bad things, that's not celebrating God. That's celebrating all the horrible, nasty, bad things. When our story is about our redemption from the horrible, nasty, bad things, that's elevating God and lifting him up. And that's a really fine line to walk sometimes. Because sometimes if you've heard testimonies or people give their testimony, they'll spend an hour talking about all the evil they did, almost like it's a badge of honor. I don't know if you've ever heard this before, but I have. And, and it makes me a little like, whatever. And then you see people that'll spend like one minute saying, man, I was invested in this, this, and this, and that's my gods that I served, and then I gave them up. And here's how God pulled me out. And they spend an hour talking about what God did to get them out of slavery, all the wonders that they've seen God do since then, how their life is just better now than it used to be, and how they found the word of God and started living it and serving it. Man, those testimonies, I walk out and I am lit up. Like I can just see God's working through their life because the whole story narrates around what God did, not about what I did, right? I re remember we were asked to teach somewhere once and they said, before you start teaching, most of the people here don't know you, you should tell a little bit about yourself, right? And I, and I love that, it's sweet, because they're just like, you should build yourself up more, Sean. You're a PhD, you've got your, you've got your ordination, you've, you're an accomplished person, you've written full books and you should talk about all the novels and books you've written, whatever, you know? So I got up, were you guys there this time? I got up and I said, Hi, everybody. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Let's turn to chapter whatever. And I could see the guy in the back of the room go. <laughs> I was like, that's all I am. I didn't, none of that stuff matters. Another place I went, I said, I'm a guy who wasted 30 years of my life being a lukewarm Christian, but I'm done with that now. Let's go to chapter whatever and do this. And I love those introductions. If you want to get to know more about my life, let's have a relationship. Let's talk but I'm not there to talk about, it's not me teaching the Bible. It's the Bible through me. The Bible comes first. It's so much more important. It doesn't matter who I am, what my name is, what I've done. All of that stuff, quite frankly, was done in sin, I think, in my own personal devotion. I was doing those things to pursue other things that this world had to offer, and none of it was worth anything. When people ask, in time, we tell. We're always ready... In the New Testament, it says, be, always be ready to give a defense for your faith. But we always forget the next two words, when asked. There's nothing worse than people who push themselves on other people. Nobody wants to be pushed into, nobody comes to Jesus because they lost an argument. It just doesn't happen. People come to Jesus because they're actually curious about that person over there that seems to have something they don't. They have yatab. I want yatab. How did you get it? In time, when people ask, you're ready to tell people. And you just be like, here's what I'm all about. So what's the meaning of this? The meaning is we serve God. We are not defined by our own righteousness. We're defined by his righteousness. And look at that. When your kids come and ask you in time, come saying, what's the meaning of the testimony? What does this all mean? You just tell them. I love when I was talking to Mike, I was like, how do you approach people when you're doing the door-to-door -door stuff? And Mike just says, I don't know. How do you have a conversation? Like, do you know how to have a conversation? Well, kind of. 
you have a conversation with me. If they want to talk, you talk. If you don't, you don't. I thought that was a great answer. I thought I was going to get some deep wisdom from him, but you know, he just pointed me to the obviousness of the Bible. So this is how we talk about God today, too. This is the core to evangelism. We got the core to our faith in the Shema. We got the core to how do we live it out individually. And in these verses, we get the core to evangelism. Step zero, live it. If, it, if you're not living it, nobody's going to ask you ever. If your kids see hypocrisy, there's no desire to know what your parent has going for them. But if all they see is passion and love and and adoration for the king, at some point they're like, I don't have adoration inside of here. What is up with my dad? He's nuts for this stuff, and I just don't get it. And that eventually kids will ask because it's what they do. So that's step zero is live it. Then step one is people ask you. Step two is you tell them, I was a slave. God saved me and did stuff. God guided and provided. God gave me a way to live through the Bible and righteousness, so I try to do it. That's evangelism. And then people have a choice. You're not trying to convince people of anything because we're not here to argue about it. We're just here to tell our testimony. This is my witness. That's why we use that language. I bear witness to what I've seen firsthand, and I never bear false witness. But I do bear witness to the things I've seen, the things I've experienced. But Sean, I've never seen or experienced anything. Then go back to step zero. Live it. Read the book and do what it says. Stop dabbling with stuff that corrupts that process. Start dabbling with stuff that makes you more sacred and holy before your king. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful. We take care, God brings the righteousness. We don't do that. That's self-righteousness. God brings righteousness. We take care. And I love those verbs because it makes it so crystal clear in this passage. It's not by, we're not holy because of what we do. We're holy because we take care and God ascribes holiness to us. He puts the raiments on us like he puts the robes on the priests. Priests do nothing. So if we're a holy priesthood, we do nothing other than love the king with all our heart, mind, and soul. That's the Shema. And God ascribes unto us righteousness. Oh, I will take that gift over anything this world has to offer. It's amazing. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful. Another way, another thought on that line. It doesn't say if we're perfect. I love that. Isn't that gracious? We don't have to be perfect. I remember once talking with, well, I won't give that story away, Grant. I'll ask your permission for next week. I love the idea that we don't have to be perfect. We can be broken. We can be people that are messed up. We can have people, we can have people with memories in our head that are just sick because we experience things that are horrible. But we don't have, that's not what the Bible asks us to fix. We don't have to fix any of that. We just have to try to take care to follow the law as best we can. That's so gracious. This is not an Old Testament that condemns. It's just, I don't read that here. I don't read it anywhere in this chapter. Before any elaboration on any of the laws, Moses says this. This chapter comes before any of the rest of his exposition on the rest of the Ten Commandments. Isn't that awesome? Serve the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Don't put any other gods before him. Don't serve false gods. And this is his exposition on that. So what does it mean to not serve false gods? To make it real and don't put anything in front of God. Man, Peter does, or Moses does better exposition than I do. Um, it's just wonderful. 
the work of doing this <laughs> is going to bank into the Jewish culture for another thousand years before Jesus shows up, 1,500 years before Jesus shows up. It's just going to sift into their culture. The Shema, the Shema, this idea of being careful, of trying to do it. And eventually, they're going to abandon themselves to legalism. You're going to have Pharisees that say, we never want to lose the land again. Nobody's going to sin, and it's my job to make sure no one else sins in this community. And the Pharisees would run around and make sure nobody sinned. It was their job because they're desperate not to get kicked out of the land again. They didn't want to go Babylon again. That was horrible. And when the Romans took over, they were terrified of that. So they're serving the Romans. Now they're in jail to the Romans. And then they're trying to serve the law and they become in jail to the law. And Jesus shows up right then. Because every effort that the Jews made to do what Moses said to do had failed by the time Jesus showed up. When Jesus comes again, every effort of Christians to try to do what God said to do in our lives is going to fail on this planet. And then I think that's exactly when Jesus shows up. You guys gave it your best effort. Nice try. I'm going to take the people who took care and I'm going to bring them to me and I'm going to take the, the, the chaff and I'm going to burn it up and get rid of it. But I'm going to gather unto myself every human being on earth throughout history who's tried to take care to serve me and love me. And that's the Bible. And that's it. We could stop right here and we could just be done with the whole Bible. This is why Jesus says that's the most important thing. And I believe Jesus. I love how Peter handles this after God does a miracle. <laughs> this is great. This is total humility from a guy. God does a miracle through you, right? Somebody gets up and starts walking around and somebody's healed. And it'd be really easy for us humans to go be like, yeah, way to go. You and me, God. But it's not you and me with Peter. He doesn't do that. Listen to this, Acts 3.12, the miracle just happened. And, they, they're like, and, and when Peter saw it, he answered the people. And he turns to the people who are like, ooh, on this miracle. And he says, you men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Why do you look so earnestly at us? As though by our power or holiness, we made this man walk? Like Peter just turns on and is like, do you really think I did this? Like, I don't make people walk. God does all of that. I, I just love it. The disciples and us, we fail in our own strength when we try to do things. But when it's sealed by God's power on our master, when he's our master, he does things through us. And we don't get to take credit for it. We don't want to take credit for it. We're slaves to our master. And like Peter, he's like, look, my king made this person walk. I'm just here to represent the king. Zechariah 4.6, Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto, unto Zerubbabel, saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Same idea. We do nothing in our own power or strength. I'll wrap up the chapter. And the Lord commanded us to observe all of these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all of these commandments before the Lord our God as he's commanded us. Chapter 6 of Deuteronomy Okay, now, coolest chapter in the entire Bible? Like, it's all there. It's one, it's a great, the greatest evangelism. Like, whenever you hear somebody say, oh, I don't know about the Old Testament or whatever, it's like, go to Deuteronomy 6 and tell me that it's a really harsh, old, like, that's the whole setup to all of the law. This is the introduction to all of the stuff that people turn into legalism. It's like, no, it's about your heart, mind, and soul. 
That's it. And when Jesus came to minister, you can see how Jesus taught is he kept going back to the people and he taught with authority saying, no, 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 the law is just about this. And he, he kept going back to Deuteronomy 6. When he's dealing with Satan, he goes to Deuteronomy 6. When he's dealing with the Pharisees, he goes to Deuteronomy 6. It's one of Jesus's favorite chapters. So when it's Jesus's favorite chapter, even if you don't think it's your favorite chapter, you don't have to, that's legalism. For me, it's one of my favorite chapters. I'm so blessed by it. I can see God moving through the Old Testament with the identical plan that I see in the New Testament through Jesus. Just right there, Moses just lays it out. How does a nation rooted in Deuteronomy 6 become the pharisaical Jewish people of Jesus' day? How does a Christian church rooted in the love of Jesus Christ turn into some of the pharisaical behavior we have in America today? How does America, a Christian nation, become so divided and hateful against one another? How does that happen? Well, the same way that it happened with the Pharisees. We're human, and we will eventually screw it up. But the goal is to be devoted and to take our own heart and to love everyone. And Jesus adds that on to it. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He just puts those two together, Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy, just right there. But we start with God. And if we don't start with God, then everything falls apart. And I'm telling you, in America right now, we got a lot of people that don't start with a personal relationship with God, and everything's falling apart. Even be mothers to daughters and brothers to sisters and churches against churches. And we have people on both sides of every dialogue in America right now. Name the hot-button topic. We've got Christians on both sides of it. Like, we don't even know which way, which way is up. But part of that is we're not starting with God in our individual personal lives. We're following pop culture figures. We're following musicians. We're following uh, superstar pastors. And we're not following the word of God for ourselves. And it's a dangerous place to be. It's a very dangerous place to be. So when somebody says we're doing a Bible study, you say, which book of the Bible? And they say, oh, we're not doing a book of the Bible. We're doing this other book. You're kind of like, oh, well, let's start with the Bible. Like, why wouldn't you? you can read it. It's in English today. It's been translated. And we can just read it for ourselves because this is where God shows his love for us. And this is the kind of love that God has. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That was Joshua's response to the law that Moses teaches in Deuteronomy. Is Joshua comes out on the other end and just says, you know what? For me and mine, we're serving the king. And that's the end result for all Christians. It's not my job to tell you how to live. I'm not a legalist. It's my job to point you to the king and tell you my story of how I got there. And if we can do that, we can be unified in Christ in all things because he forgives all things uh, as far as the east is from the west and those that's a starting point of relationship with all people amen all right I don't know if that's one of my favorite chapters Jesus we thank you thank you for the word of God that you have sustained through your people we thank you for Israel I pick on these Pharisees Lord but I I thank you for the nation of Israel that held your word as precious that maintained it through centuries of translation and rewriting, that we can have word that was spoken audibly to those people uh, and we can read it for ourselves. Lord, I thank you for Moses and his teaching and his exposition in Deuteronomy, that we can get the insights of a man who walked and talked with you and met you and saw you face to face. Uh, Lord, we just thank you for him and his diligence in writing it down. Lord, we thank you that we... Uh, we see the truths of the Bible, not just in their reason and logic, but in our lives. And that experience that we have, Lord, with you is just sustaining and wonderful. Lord, I pray for peace in our hearts. Lord, I pray for tov for everyone in this room. 
May you wash them in contentment and peace. But Lord, as they serve you and love you, I pray for uh, Yatab. Lord, I just pray for abundance. I pray for those moments where we see your majesty, your grace, and your power that we can share with people and we can capture those stories that sustain us, carry us forward, and the things we tell our kids about. Uh, Lord, help us to be wise in how we do that. Help us to not be self-shaming, to feel guilt over our sin, Lord, but to continue to pursue your law and your love and your righteousness. Uh, Lord, we can't be perfect. We know it's not by our works that we do any of this. We know it's your righteousness put upon us uh, when you so choose to do that. So Lord, we just ask you for your grace and your peace. Help us to speak words of peace and encouragement to everyone we know. Help us to make peace with people as much as we can, uh, with all people, Lord, and help us to be gracious and kind and loving. Help us also, Lord, to acknowledge and understand when people are seeking things that are empty and false. Help us to be willing to speak truth and love when we need to. Uh, And when people ask, help us to be willing to tell whether or not they receive that message with grace, Lord, but help us to still be willing to speak that truth. Uh, In Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you. Blessings. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.